This is They Create Worlds, Episode 50, Civilizing Sid Meier. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This is episode 50. Five zero, another milestone. Just hit our two-year anniversary milestone, and now we're on to another milestone. This is great. We have all these milestones all conveniently packaged right next to each other, complete with better audio, at least for Alex, not necessarily for me. We're working on it. We're getting there. Improving all the time, I like to think. That's, of course, all uh, Jeffrey here. I'm just the guy that, you know, natters on randomly for an hour and a half to two hours. And then I get to hear it again and just cut all the little spaces out. And you can hear some of that, too, sometimes, I'm told. You can. On occasion, I actually edit these things for long periods of time, and you can follow on YouTube Live, available on our website. So you can hear all of the horrible things that we say that are not suitable for public consumption, yet now we're foolishly making available for public consumption as part of the editing process. I'm not sure we thought that one all the way through, Jeff. When did we think any of this through? I thought, you know, it'd be fun to play around with audio stuff. I'll just buy some microphones and just have us blab at each other over Skype. And now it's taken over all of your free time. Amongst other things. (laughs) But anyway, that completely digresses from what we're trying to go into, which is some guy named Sid Meier who made a civilization that spanned the entire world of computing all the way from my... 386 up to my modern day system. Occasionally there are some additional numbers in there, like two, three, four. There's some question about five. <laughs> yes, truly, Sid Meier has built a computer game empire to stand the test of time. But of course, there's far more to Sid Meier than just civilization, even though that is quite correctly going to be the product that he is most associated with by posterity, by historians, by people looking back on him. He did so much more before and even after civilization, though certainly his most significant work occurred from civilization and further back. He hasn't done anything nearly as amazing since. But he's one of those few designers that has been in the industry for decades and who is fairly well known. It helped that his name was on the box. It did. I mean, maybe he wouldn't be nearly so well-known if his name wasn't on the box, but he's one of a handful of designers right up there with Will Wright or Shigeru Miyamoto, where if you're talking to someone who's into video games, I don't mean just going up to John Q. Public on the street, but if you're talking to someone who's into video and computer games, that's one of those few names that you can throw that name out there, and another enthusiast will be like, oh yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. So he's a pretty significant guy, certainly worthy of a a podcast, I think, now that we mention it. Quite possibly. (laughs) Either that or it's going to lead to piracy. Well, there was some of that too, definitely, both in video game form and in non-video game form. Oh God, was that game ever pirated? (laughs) And we're not talking about Sid Meier's Pirates. Obviously, this guy is well-known. What brought him into video games? Where did he start? What brought him to computers? 
Sure. Well, he he was a computer programmer. I mean, he learned that trade, and he was also very much into games, board games and this kind of thing. He saw Pong, a version of Pong, a ball and paddle game. It may not have been Atari's Pong, in a lounge someplace in uh, Baltimore, and thought that these video games were kind of cool things. He thought the computers were kind of cool things. He thought games in general were kind of cool things. In the early 1980s, he was working for a Baltimore-based company called General Instruments. It was a contractor in a wide range of electronics fields. One of the things that it particularly focused on was kind of -of point-of-sale systems and retail systems. And that's actually where Sid himself was working in at the time. He was a systems analyst. He knew how to program. He was a programmer, but in his job, he wasn't actually doing the programming himself. As a systems analyst, he was basically working with the client to define what they wanted in their point-of-sale cash register system. It's very important to do that because if you don't know what the customer actually wants, what their true needs are, you're going to create a product that doesn't meet the customer's needs, and you go, and the customer often doesn't know what they want. They go, hey, nice vendor. I want a point-of-sale system. And the vendor who's dumb just says, oh, here's a generic point-of-sale system. <laughs> right. And then the purchaser, the person doing the, needing the point-of-sales, goes, well, this doesn't do what I want. I want it to be, I need to track this because my business is unique in this way, and I need to track this, that, and the other thing. This doesn't handle credit cards the way I want to handle credit cards. Wouldn't it be nice if it went over here and sent that and the other thing? So really what the system analyst does is sits down with the customer Mm -hmm. and really works through their entire process of, okay, what is your product? What is your current ecosystem? How do you get that product to the customer? Okay, here's how we can best utilize technology in order to achieve your goals and make your job easier. Mm -hmm. And now that we have defined these goals, we can then take those goals and have Mr. Programmer code our point-of-sale system and tailor it specifically to your needs. Exactly. Uh, Couldn't put it better myself. So he was basically working as the liaison between the customer that wanted the system and the programmers that would then be tasked with implementing that system, and he was the guy that was the go-between between those. During this period of time, of course, the first microcomputers had come out in the late 1970s. He noticed the first ones, things like the TRS-80, but they weren't very interesting. I mean, certainly the Apple II had graphical capabilities. That was a far more expensive system. But the TRS-80, for instance, essentially didn't do graphics. I mean, you could kind of throw lines up on the screen, but it essentially didn't do graphics. So he wasn't too interested in the first kind of round of computers. But then when the Atari 8-bit computer came out, the uh, 400 and 800 computers from Atari, those very much interested him because those were more advanced systems. They had good multimedia capabilities, and they felt like systems that were made kind of by engineers for engineers. And when I say that, I mean, you didn't have to be an engineer to know how to use an Atari 8-bit, but it felt like a computer that was made to be used by people that wanted to program exciting things. This isn't a technology that I see that really speaks to me as a user. This isn't a computer that's designed specifically for kids. This isn't a computer that is designed specifically for business. This is for someone who likes technology and wants to really push technology to the max. Exactly. It was until the Commodore 64 came out a couple years later, the the Atari 8-bits were clearly the class of the 
early microcomputers just in terms of their audiovisual and, and programming capability. Despite the fact that they failed and crashed horribly. Yes, as, as we discussed, of course, uh, in that series of Atari episodes we did that, that one time. You know, like three episodes ago. <laughs> so he got really into that scene, and uh, he started making some of his own little game experiments. He started fiddling around. You know, maybe he makes a little Space Invaders clone. The same way that a typical bedroom coder gets started, though, of course, he's a professional man. He's not a high school kid like so many of those British coders or even a college kid. This is a guy that's already in a career and is fiddling around with this thing. How old was he at this time, roughly? So he was in his late 20s at this period of time. So you know, well out of college, but still young enough that he's not closed off to new ideas, new concepts, and interesting new toys that he can play around with, like these Atari 8-bit computers. So he does his own kind of little experiments, and he's also trading software with some of his friends. Trading. Piracy. Kind of had this uh, users group going, Sid Meier users group, that he was involved in. It was kind of through that and through his Atari 8-bit programming that he first met the man that would turn his little hobby into an actual business. And that is Wild Bill Steely. Wild Bill was an Air Force Academy graduate. Real name is John Steely, but he got that name Wild Bill. His middle name, I think, was William. He got that name Wild Bill uh, actually as a lacrosse player at the Air Force Academy. He was a relentless lacrosse player, playing to win, playing hard no matter what, getting out there and taking people down with that stick, I guess. I don't mean literally, but, you know, uh, that's how he got that name. So he was Wild Bill. He was a pilot, a United States Air Force pilot. He flew training aircraft. Then he was transferred from training jets to flying C-5A galaxies, huge cargo hauling planes. And as he said to me in our interview, he's an interesting character to interview. <laughs> His interviews are always entertaining, not just the one I did, but if you look at some of the others he's done. Definitely a larger-than-life kind of personality. Uh, as he put it to me on our interview, he joined the Air Force to have fun, and flying C-5s wasn't fun. So that was the point that he got out of active duty in the Air Force. Oh, dear. So he went back to school, got himself an MBA from Wharton, very fine school, Wharton School of Business in Pennsylvania. And then he got a job as director of strategic planning at General Instruments, the same company that Sid Meier's working at. At some point, Wild Bill, you know, he's, he's doing projections and he's doing business stuff. He's doing balance sheets and whatnot. At some point, he decides he wants to computerize that. So he's in the market for a computer himself to use in his business. So as he tells the story, he went down to the computer store and they're showing him, you know, the TRS-80. They're showing him the Apple II or, and whatever. And then over here... There's an Atari 8-bit computer playing Star Raiders. Star Raiders uh, was a very popular program on the Atari 8-bit. It was really a system-selling game. It was a space simulator kind of game, you know, kind of the wing commander of its day, essentially. Oh, my. Um, a similar kind of gameplay to something like Wing Commander. Space flight. And shooting things. Mm-hmm. You know, not just space flight. And, I mean... It's it's not an accurate simulator, just like Wing Commander is not an accurate simulator. But the important thing is, is you're zooming through space, shooting down the bad guys. So as Wild Bill tells the story, they're showing him all these computers, and he's like, uh, what's that? And he's like, oh, that's Star Wars on Atari 8-bit. And he's like, and does that have VisiCalc 2? And it's like, 
Yeah, yeah, it also does. Well, then I want the computer that does Fizzy Calc and does that. Because <laughs> he thought that game was kind of cool. So, Sold. So he bought himself an Atari 8-bit. And so he's looking around for other Atari 8-bit users in the company that he can maybe get some knowledge from. And so this is, this is how they first kind of become acquainted with each other. At that time, though, it's, it's ships passing in the night. Because uh, while Bill learns that Sid's involved in some of this software piracy stuff and... While Bill takes the Air Force Academy honor code very seriously, very seriously. Definitely. And so he didn't want anything to do with any of this piracy nonsense. So he that's when he first became aware of Sid, but they didn't really connect at that point. Then sometime later, I don't know, weeks, months, I couldn't tell you exactly. They're at a conference in Vegas. It's a company conference, company retreat down in Vegas. And in the middle of some big, boring meeting about projections for the next year or something like that. Sid kind of turns to Wild Bill and is like, hey, you know, I know a place where we can go play some really cool games. Why don't we get out of here? So they kind of sneak out of the meeting, go to the uh, arcade in the casino they're at, and there's a flying game there called Red Baron. It's an Atari game. It's not an Atari game we talked about because it's not a very significant game, really, in the grand scheme of things. It's basically Battlezone with airplanes, except Battlezone was a hugely popular game and and Red Baron never became popular in that same way. So it's a vector graphics game, kind of first-person perspective, just like Battlezone, except instead of controlling a tank and shooting other tanks, you're controlling like a World War I airplane and shooting other World War I airplanes. So uh, the way Wild Bill loves to tell the story and Wild Bill loves telling stories, uh, and I don't mean that, I mean that in a good way. I mean, he is a raconteur. As he tells the story, he's Air Force guy, flew jets for a living. He never flew jets in combat, but still, he, he knows how to fly a fighter jet. So Wild Bill is very confident that he can get in there and he can play this game and he can just kick Sid's ass. He is confident of this. So he goes in, he plays the game, he racks up a score, and he's basically like, okay, nerd, beat that. I mean, he didn't say it like that, but basically, you know, okay, nerd, beat that. So Sid gets on the machine and promptly humiliates Wild Bill by completely crushing his score. And so Wild Bill's basically like, how in tarnation did you do that? And he was like, well, this game has really, really simple AI routines. So while you were playing the game, I watched and I memorized all of these very simple AI routines and they were very easy to beat. If I were making a game, I would never make anything this simple. It's like, while Bill's like, oh, well, you think you can do something better? And he's like, well, yeah, I guess I kind of can. Sid's a modest kind of shy guy. I mean, Sid wouldn't be uh, belligerent in this situation. But while Bill, he's a classic fighter pilot. He is definitely belligerent. I don't mean belligerent, like, but I mean, um, I don't even want to say aggressive. I'm not trying to paint he's a very, negative picture. He's very, very confident. He, if you yeah. think of the typical military personnel. Mm-hmm. And it's the nature of the job. It's the nature of what attracts people to the positions and up the ranks is these are confident people who are very sure in themselves Mm -hmm. of what they're doing because they have to be. That's what we expect from them. And that's what they expect from themselves. So he's going like, there is no ambiguity. There is no chance to have doubt. It's action. Exactly. So, you know, he's getting up and he was like, oh, you really, you think you can do something better than that, huh? Than what these professional game designers did. And Sid's kind of like, oh, yeah, give me two weeks and, you know, I could definitely create something much better than, than this thing here. And then while Bill, not to be outdone in the braggadocio department, is like, well, if you can make a game in two weeks that's better than this, I sure as heck could sell it. 
There you go. And so uh, a partnership is is kind of formed. They don't found the company right then, but that's kind of the beginning. And it, it doesn't take Sid Meier two weeks. It takes him about two months. And I'm not sure that Wild Bill ever expected to hear back from him. This is, you know, in Wild Bill's mind, I think this is just, you know, a couple of fighter jocks trying to outbrag each other. You know what I mean? He didn't necessarily what, expect who can anything. have the greatest bravado? Exactly. It's It's an ego kind of thing. Now, like I said, Sid's not an egotistical guy, so I don't think Sid necessarily saw it as a pissing contest, but Wild Bill saw that as a pissing contest, you know, I mean, <laughs> he's not going to be outdone. So about two months later, rather than two weeks later, uh, Sid comes up to him and hands him a disc, and Wild Bill's basically like, what's this? It's like, well, here's the game. <laughs> and so Wild Bill takes it home. Uh, it's a very straightforward combat fighter game called Hellcat Ace, uh, based on the, the Hellcat, a World War II uh, fighter plane. It's not a complicated game. It's pretty simple. It's not really a flight simulator because it's it's more actiony. It's not really emulating a realistic flight model. But it's a little action game on on his Atari eight uh, bit computer. And so Wild Bill takes it home and looks it over and plays it a bit and comes up with a whole list of things that aren't quite right with it because this is a first pass at a program. I mean that's not to criticize. And so. He hands that list. It's like, well, yeah, you made a pretty good game here, but there's this, 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 and this that's wrong with it. And Sid's basically like, okay. So then I don't know exactly how long later, but a little bit later, Sid comes back and he's like, here you go. I fixed everything that you pointed out. And then Wild Bill was basically like, well, I guess I have to sell this thing now because <laughs> he's not going to back down. Wild Bill doesn't back down from a challenge. He said he could do it, so he's darn well going to do it. I mean... <laughs> he's quite a character. I like Wild Bill a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the man, but I mean, it was just so Your fun. Your interaction with him it was, was very just, memorable. It was just so fun to interview him. So very fun to interview him. <laughs> so he does. He goes out, he makes phone calls, and he uses the, uh, uh, it's a cla- he didn't invent this technique, but it's the classic sales technique, where he gets a list of all the computer stores in the area, and then one by one he calls them, and he's like, have you heard about the game Hellcat 8s? I, I saw this ad for it because I think he took out an ad for it in, in a magazine, just a small one first. It's like, I've heard about this game, Hellcat Ace. Caring Hellcat Ace. And the guy will be like, no, no, we're not. And then a couple days later, he'll call back as someone else. And it's like, I heard about this cool new game, Hellcat Ace. Do you carry a Hellcat Ace? And they're like, uh, no, 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 we don't we don't have that one. Oh, man, I really want this Hellcat Ace. And then a couple days later, he'll be like, this is John Steely calling. I'd like to offer you a new game that we have called Hellcat Ace. And then they'd be like, oh, thank God. We've been hearing so much about this program. Everyone's been wanting it. We'll take five because <laughs> we're still talking small numbers back in these days. But of course, <laughs> so uh, so he sells this game, Hellcat Ace, and and they basically have to form a company around it uh, at this point. So this is when they found Microprose together. Micro comes from microcomputer. Prose comes from this idea of making artful code. That the artful code that they're making is akin to the beautiful prose. So that's where the name Microprose comes from. And this episode is not a history of Microprose. We're not really going to talk much about Microprose as a company. This is about Sid. But this is how Sid gets started in game design, is by co-founding Microprose around this game, Hellcat Ace, that he basically built on a bet. Sid Meier is very much in the same vein as a guy like Shigeru Miyamoto, actually. He's very much an iterator. He's very much about he finds something cool. He finds some cool thing out there, some cool twist, some cool mechanics, some cool new technology. And then he starts prototyping something off of that. And he'll make a little prototype of this system and then he'll fiddle with it and then improve it some or maybe add this little bit on top of it. 
a very system analyst thing to do, quite frankly. I mean, that's kind of his background, and that's kind of how he builds things. Very, that's very similar to how Miyamoto built a lot of his games. That's one kind of school of, of game design, is this idea that you basically build something small and simple, and then you iterate and you iterate and you iterate and you iterate until you get something that you've decided is fun enough and polished enough and involved enough that you can have a game. All of these next few Sid Meier games that we're going to talk about are basically built in that way. He finds something out in the world that intrigues him, or he's playing around with something new that intrigues him, and out of that, he gets a fully formed game. So Hellcat Ace is not a very complicated game in terms of its flight model. It's certainly no flight simulator, which is out at about the same time here, and is kind of the flagship flight simulation program. And obviously, Flight Simulator in 1980-1982 is not like Flight Simulator in 2005. I mean, it's primitive as well, but it, it has a flight model, unlike, say, Hellcat Ace, which doesn't really have a flight model. So the next game that he kind of does is he kind of looks at something like Flight Simulator that has a better flight model and is like, hmm, I can do something similar to that. I can make a game that is a little better in terms of its fidelity to, to real flight physics. And so he comes up with the game uh, Solo Flight based on that. The, the other thing that's interesting about Sid Meier is we're going we're gonna to see with a lot of the games uh, that he makes that he often takes inspiration from very open-ended games. And he, and he will even start making games that are in their own way fairly open-ended, games like Pirates and Civilization. But he always wants there to be an objective. Sid Meier doesn't like toy boxes. I don't know what his opinion is of Minecraft, but my guess is he's not a Minecraft player, really. Because it's not just that he wants cool systems to play around with. He is a game player. He grew up playing board games. He, he wants a game. He wants some kind of objective. He doesn't just want to play around. There needs to be a goal in this game. I don't want just a sandbox where I can do anything. I want there to be some sort of direction to what I'm doing. I may have multiple ways, maybe infinite ways to achieve mm -hmm. that objective, or I can achieve that objective and continue on for a few more rounds if I feel like it. Right. And the objective could even be very vague. I mean, a game like Pirates, you can practically play forever. But he wants there to be something there that you're at least keeping in mind. So Flight Simulator is basically just about flying around. So that, that kind of thing doesn't appeal to him. So unlike Flight Simulator, Solo Flight actually has an objective. You're delivering mail around the country, so you're actually having to fly routes. So you've got the realistic flight physics more like Flight Simulator, less like Hellcat Ace. It's not a combat game. But you still have something that you have to do, you have to accomplish. Here we're seeing, just in his very second game, we're seeing two critical hallmarks of Sid Meier. The first is that he likes building on concepts that he's seen out in the world someplace else. But he also likes to make sure that even if he's got something pretty freeform, that he still has an objective built into it. So Solo Flight is the game that really puts Microprose on the map. And, and remember, being put on the map in 1983, which is when Solo Flight was released, is not the same thing as being put on the map today. They were still a very small company, and they were still actually a company that were experiencing not the greatest financial success either. But Solo Flight was the first one where they're starting to get a little more national distribution, a little more national recognition, because Hellcat Ace was basically just calling around to stores directly and selling five copies here and three copies there and that kind of thing. I mean, they got some larger orders too, but it's pretty small potatoes. Solo Flight's still small, but it's a little bigger than Hellcat Ace. 
once it was finished and once it looked like this could be a good game, another publisher, a bigger publisher called Hessware, was actually interested in buying the rights to the game and actually being the company to sell that game. It's interesting. Sid Meier has virtually no interest in business. He wants nothing to do with the business. As far as he's concerned, the reason he partnered with Wild Bill and Microprose is so that Wild Bill could make business decisions and Sid Meier could just design and program games. That was his love. That's what he wanted to do. And so he almost never involved himself in the business of the company, even though he technically could because he was a partner in Microprose. But this one time, Wild Bill asked his opinion. It's like Hessware is interested in buying Solo Flight, you know, flat out, like giving them $150,000 or something like that. They have complete rights to Solo Flight. Uh, and he's like, well, what do you think of that, uh, Sid? And Sid's like, well, you know, I, I, hand, I hired you to, to make all these business decisions. I don't want to be involved. But then he said, and this is, again, this is the way Wild Bill likes to tell the story. Wild Bill may color up some of his stories, obviously, a little bit, because he does like being a storyteller. But even if some of the exact who, what, when, where is a little bit embellished, it certainly happened close to, <laughs> to how Wild Bill says, you know. So he says, well, I hired you to make those, or not hired, I partnered with you to make those decisions, Wild Bill. Uh, then he kind of pauses and says, but I've always been told you don't sell the family jewels. Solo Flight is their latest game. It's really all they have. They think it's probably going to be an okay hit, a modest hit. So, you know, Sid's kind of like, this is kind of, this isn't some little spinoff thing. This this game is what's going to be powering our company for the next little bit here. And it, it feels like that's something maybe you don't sell off. So Sid did not make very many business decisions, but that was one important time where he kind of advised Wild Bill on what they should do. And Wild Bill turned down the deal and, and Hessware went bankrupt not long after that. So if they had sold to Hessware, it would have been a disaster because Hessware would have gone out of business and that game might not have got any kind of distribution. Instead, Microprose published it themselves and got national distribution for it, and it, it did fairly well for them. So Microprose is kind of up and running and on its way at this point, though it still suffers problem. In fact, in 1984, it almost goes belly up again. The game that finally puts Microprose on the map to stay, that keeps them there, is F-15 Strike Eagle. Strike Eagle, as the name implies, is a flight simulator based on the F-15 fighter jet. Like so many Sid Meier games, it comes out purely out of experimentation. Even though both Hellcat Ace and Solo Flight were flight simulators, and they had also had a third flight simulator that they'd released by that time, I think, called MIG Alley that was programmed by another guy, it wasn't necessarily true that Sid Meier was always going to make flight simulators. He, in fact, made a couple of games that weren't flight simulators in the early days of the company. They never did as well as the others, but Floyd of the Jungle was more of an action-y game. He made a game like Defender called Chopper Rescue that was using a helicopter instead of a spaceship. Uh, he did a strategy game, NATO Commander. So he was making other games, but none of those games ever ended up doing as well as the flight simulators. We're talking about the big hits, Hellcat Ace, Solo Flight, F-15, but it wasn't necessarily true that after Solo Flight, he was going to do another flight simulator. He started out just doing experiments. He was very interested in doing more three-dimensional graphics. He started experimenting with wireframe graphics and rotations of wireframe graphics to create a more 3D feel. Once he kind of got going on that, and once he got that working well, he just felt that those kind of wire rotations lent themselves very well to doing another flight simulator. 
So he got there. It ended up, he's done Hellcat Ace, he's done Solo Flight, now he's doing F-15. But it wasn't, I'm going to make a flight simulator. It was, I've got this cool new graphical technique. This would really work well on a flight simulation game. Now at this point, now that they're doing a military flight simulator for the first time, because Hellcat Ace was a game involving military aircraft, but it wasn't really robust enough to be a flight simulator. Solo Flight was a flight simulator, but it wasn't military. Now that they're kind of combining those two concepts and doing a military flight simulator, they are right in Wild Bill's wheelhouse. He knows military fighter aircraft. Exactly, and he knows the equipment that is used with military fighter aircraft. He kind of knows a bit about how military missions go. He knows about military briefings. He knows how that whole kind of military apparatus and fighter apparatus works because been in the military, <laughs> still in the uh, Air Force Reserve at this point, as a matter of fact. So kind of what sets F-15 Strike Eagle apart, aside from the fact that Sid is a good programmer and it's a good game and he's got these good wireframe graphics and everything, is that it just feels more authentic. They put in missions that are kind of ripped from the headlines that take place in crisis centers of the day, like the Middle East and stuff like that. Still crisis centers today, of course. Some things never change, it feels like. They put in a lot of authentic military hardware, authentic military operational procedure. They included a huge 100-page manual with it, something really meaty that made people feel like they were getting a great value for their product and gave a lot of information on all the systems of the F-15. And they really infused that product with Wild Bill's military knowledge. This kind of brings us to another point of Sid Meier, because this, this is uh, about Sid Meier, is he is very good at doing the programming and doing the systems and coming up with great game mechanics. I mean, he's great at all of that. He often relies on an assistant or a muse to bounce ideas off of and help him flesh out other aspects of a game. So on these early kind of military games, Wild Bill was really that muse, because Wild Bill had that knowledge that could be used to add that extra layer of fidelity, extra layer of authenticity on top of those products. F-15 Strike Eagle becomes a humongous hit. It sells hundreds of thousands of units. It may have even sold over a million units by the time all was said and done, but that's including ports to things. There was an NES port. Uh, so, I mean, it didn't sell a million copies on home computer platforms. But it sold at least hundreds of thousands of copies on home computer platforms, and that was the point that Microprose finally looked like it was going to stay around for good, because they were running out of money in the lead-up to Strike Eagle being released. That's the game that puts Microprose on the map. By extension, puts Sid Meier on the map, though his name's not on the box yet. They become the military simulator company. Quite frankly, Wild Bill would have probably been happy just being the military simulator company. Now, he wasn't opposed to going other places. I'm not saying that Wild Bill was narrow-minded, because Wild Bill followed Sid Meier on all the crazy things that he's about to do here in the late 80s. But I'm saying Wild Bill would have probably been okay with being the military simulation company, because that was something he really understood, and he could really market that to the hilt. He kind of created a Wild Bill persona for himself as the head of the company. He would go to trade shows in his flight suit. They would offer up rides in his plane to people that won contests or stuff like that. They really played up Wild Bill as the fighter pilot and Wild Bill being able to provide this extra layer of authenticity 
to a microprose game. They didn't put Wild Bill's name on the box either. It's just in magazines and interviews and trade shows and whatnot. He was very much the face of the company. He liked doing that kind of marketing. And so for these kind of games, it made sense to use Wild Bill for that kind of marketing just because he was the fighter pilot. F-15 Strike Eagle was released in 1984. Around this time, Sid Meier is exposed to the game that will quite simply change the course of his life from a professional perspective and lead him off in an entirely different direction from this military simulation stuff that his company's fast becoming known for. And that's Seven Cities of Gold, created by a programmer who at the time went by the name Dan Bunton. He later, or she rather, she later transitioned and became Danielle Bunton Barry. That was later on in the 90s. At this point, she is still identified as Dan Bunton. That can be a kind of sensitive thing, how, how you refer to someone who transitions. But at this time, he's a he. So if I, if I say he instead of she, just, just, just bear with me here, because mm-hmm. this was pre-transition. <laughs> So Dan Bunton, Daniel Bunton Barry, had created a game called Seven Cities of Gold that was released by Electronic Arts in 1984 or 1985, right in that time period. Danielle was, like Sid Meier, someone who had grown up playing some of these more advanced board games and war games, the kind of stuff Avalon Hill does. Avalon Hill, incidentally, a Baltimore company, Microprose, a Baltimore company. That's going to be important in a little bit. Danielle, at this period of time, was recently enamored with an Avalon Hill board game called Civilization. Now, I know where you uh, computer game aficionados are immediately going when you hear the name Civilization. Yes, the Sid Meier game Civilization did take some small amount of influence, though actually very small amount of influence, from this board game. But Civilization, the board game, is very different from Civilization, the computer game. It still has some of those trappings where you're creating cities and researching technologies and and all of this, but it's an ancient world game, and it takes place kind of in the cradle of civilization, takes place in the Mediterranean specifically, and you're building a civilization like from 2000 BC to 400 BC or or something like that. It's not the same globe-spanning, era-spanning game that is the civilization that we know as computer gamers. But it is a game called Civilization that explores some of the same themes. Danielle decides that she would really like to translate that into a computer game, which in 1984, that is a huge undertaking. Her fellow programmers at Ozark Softscape, the, the company that she founded, talk her out of that one. This is too big. This is too complicated. We can't possibly render this as a computer game. But Danielle still wanted to do something like that. She wanted something big. Danielle was very much an innovator, particularly in multiplayer gameplay. Ironically, this is one of her very, very few single-player games that she ever did, but it's just as influential as any of her multiplayer stuff, if not more so. Still wanted to do something very big, so she focused in on another Avalon Hill game, Seven Cities. I I think it might have been called Seven Cities of Gold, just like the, the computer game that she made, where it took place in South and Central America during the Conquistador era, when Spanish conquistadors are exploring the New World for the first time, battling the natives, conquering the natives, establishing colonies, finding resources, shipping gold back to Spain. It's a game, basically, of conquest of the New World uh, as a Spanish conquistador. 
So it's still a kind of expansive concept, but it feels a little more manageable than civilization. So Danielle leads the creation of this game, Seven Cities of Gold. There are two things that are quite unique for their time about Seven Cities of Gold. First, it's huge. You're exploring this gigantic map, and you're discovering native tribes, you're figuring out how to deal with them, whether through diplomacy or through overawing them by presenting yourself as gods or by, you know, conquering them, killing everybody. So you're exploring the new world, you're discovering resources, you're establishing, like, gold mines or whatever to ship gold back to Spain, you're figuring out how to deal with the natives through extermination or cooperation or what have you. That's seven cities of gold. The other interesting thing is it ships by default with the real map of the New World, but she wanted the game to feature the same kind of unpredictability that the real conquistadors faced when they arrived in South and Central America, because obviously they had no idea what the geography was. They didn't know where the people were. They didn't know where the resources were. If you know something about history, if you just present a map of South America, South and Central America, If your player knows something about history, well, they'll know to some degree. I mean, they may not know down to the exact level of detail that the game's going to portray, but they'll know enough that they can... Not just history, knowledge of geography. Yeah, history and geography. I know there's mountains over there. I know there's people over there. Mm -hmm. I know there's a river there. And if there's a river there, there's likely people there. And I can probably ship things from that mountain there (laughs) into that water there into that boat over there. That's right. So she wanted to recapture some of that unpredictability. So she also created a very convincing, uh, a very well-done random map generator so that you could generate a game world that was fairly logically consistent. It didn't have really weird placement of people and resources and terrain and whatnot, but allowed you to go into this new world blind because now you don't know where the people are. You don't know where the resources are. Makes it more exciting. It's a big game. It's a game with a set objective to be delivering gold back to Spain, but uh, a lot of ways to explore and kind of develop that objective, and there's a lot of this sense of discovery and whatnot in it. Seven Cities of Gold has a huge, huge impact on Sid Meier. He absolutely adores this game. It's just bigger than anything that he had before considered on a microcomputer program. He likes playing games, too. He's not just a designer. He likes playing games, as we established earlier. So, I mean, he plays the heck out of this game, and he he enjoys it as a game, and he admires it as a design. That really causes a pivot in his game design priorities. So he's got seven cities of gold in the back of his mind. Then a couple of other things are going on. He's also playing some of the text adventures, some of the early text adventures at this time. I mean, by the mid-'80s, Maybe they're not so early anymore, but early in the grand scheme of computer history. The parser on these really frustrates him. He's really not happy with having to fight the parser in order to play the game. This is the exact same kind of problem that caused Ron Gilbert to invent a form of the point-and-click adventure with Maniac Mansion. You know, he hated fighting the parser. There are many designers throughout history that have hated fighting the parser, and (laughs) Sid Meier is definitely one of those. So another thing that he had going through his mind is there's got to be a better way to do an adventure game than fight the parser. I don't want to have to go north, go north, go west, go south, take this, take that, look at this, use that. I don't want to have to type that much. I don't want to have to guess the parser so much. I just want to, I want to get to the highlights. I want to hit the highlights of the game. 
I want to find this item and then I want to use this item right away and have something big happen. I don't want all of the interconnected mundane stuff in between. He's also starting to think at this time about cinema and the relationship of games to cinema and whether games can start to approach cinema in storytelling. This is also pushing him towards the idea of, I want to hit the highlights. I want to enjoy the cinematic elements. I don't necessarily want a role-playing game where I have to walk across 30 tiles to get to the next town. I want to do the big thing in this town, and then I want to go to this town and immediately do the big thing there and just chain together a series of cinematic events. So all of these different influences are kind of running through his mind at the same time. And all of these coalesce in the idea of doing an expansive kind of adventure game in the Caribbean as a pirate. Taking on this role of the pirate captain and going to place to place and having little individual cinematic encounters of various types that are all stitched together into an overall career as a pirate. So it's like you're moving through a big space. It's not got the same degree of exploration as Seven Cities of Gold because you kind of know what the Caribbean is, but the exploration element comes from deciding which islands you want to visit and and what you want to do there. So he's got this Seven Cities of Gold idea of this big geographical area where you're going to engage in multiple activities in pursuit of a larger goal. He's got that from Seven Cities. And then from his ruminations on parsers and on cinematic elements, he's got this idea of Let's just hit the highlights. Let's go here and boom, encounter. Then let's go here and boom, encounter. And you're always doing something big and interesting. You're never just fighting a parser or going 15, 20 tiles without much happening. You know, he just wants to stitch together these cinematic elements. And so that is how he comes up with this idea for Pirates. And Pirates is a very new kind of game. We talked about Elite in the last episode and how Elite kind of introduced this idea of big open world where you kind of have a big objective of success at the top, and then you have all of these activities you can do to make it there. Pirates is very much the same way, and and it's an independent, kind of concurrent evolution of the same idea. Uh, Elite came first. I mean, Elite pioneered this kind of gameplay before Pirates did. Elite's 84, Pirates is 87. But I don't believe Sid Meier was ever exposed to Elite. He's never claimed that as an influence, and it's plausible. Because it was a British game, and yes, it was released in the United States, but it was never as big in the United States as it was in Britain. He arrived at the same kind of place as the elite people did just a couple years later through a different set of influences. So Pirates is almost as important as Elite, not quite as important because it wasn't first and didn't, say, influence Grand Theft Auto, but is almost as important as elite in kind of creating this idea of an open world where you're given this objective to become the terror of the Spanish main and become the most successful pirate. Well, not just the Spanish main, because there are multiple governments, the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, everyone that were actually in the Caribbean are represented. You're going to become the terror of the Caribbean, the most successful pirate in the Caribbean, and you can go and you can romance governor's daughters, you can have sea battles, you can trade, uh, you can become a privateer, you can actually get a letter of marquee from one of these governments and then become a privateer raiding the ships of other governments. You have dramatic sword fights, you know, all these different activities you can engage in as part of this greater goal and done in a pretty accurate representation of the Caribbean. The other thing to remember about Sid Meier that's very important 
Sid Meier is not a person that wants absolute historical fidelity. He's not that kind of guy. He wants something fun and accessible. If you have a grade school level of knowledge of history, that's really all you really need to understand the game. Exactly. And that's all he wants there to be. I mean, he's a smart guy. If he wanted to read a billion history books and get every last bit of detail in there, I'm sure he could. But he doesn't want that because he knows that that doesn't make a fun game. If you get too tied up in the minutia of little details, it bogs down the gameplay. It makes it so that it's not so much fun because you're having to do all of this adherence to real world, how things were, all this minutia, where just having the broad strokes of, I can just let my imagination fill in the gaps is a lot more entertaining because I'm not being told. It's almost like if I let my imagination play in, I can almost vicariously bring myself into that moment, bring myself into the game, and derive a lot more enjoyment out of it. Exactly. I mean, and of course, there's always a certain type of player that loves the complexity and the fiddliness of getting as accurate as possible. But mass market appeal-wise, that's not a large portion of your player base. So Pirates is not a historically accurate representation of the Caribbean. He tried to get the geography pretty correct. But it's not a historically accurate representation of the Caribbean or of piracy. It's more, this is how the pirate movies, which is a genre of movie that was very popular back in the 1950s as an adventure kind of movie. You know, pirate movies and westerns and whatnot were the superhero movies of their day, (laughs) essentially. So he was capturing the swashbuckling adventure vibe of pirate movies of the 1950s, 1960s, not trying to capture history. So it's not in any way an accurate representation of being a pirate, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. (laughs) That's Pirates, which becomes a huge hit on the Commodore 64, ported to other systems as well, I think. It is not Pirates. It is Sid Meier's Pirates. This is entirely Wild Bill Steely once again. Sid is a very modest man. Sid is the type to avoid the limelight. Sid is not egotistical. Sid doesn't toot his own horn. Microprose at this point is known for its flight simulators. Wild Bill is known as the face of the company as the military guy for the military simulation company. Wild Bill wanted to market this game a little differently because it's a departure from what at this point has become the Microprose brand. So he gets the idea of putting Sid's name on the box, not because anyone knew who Sid Meier was. I'm sure the programming community knew who Sid Meier was and the industry knew who Sid Meier was, but the John Q public didn't know who Sid Meier was. When you put someone's name on a product, there is an assumption at that point that that person is important, because if that person weren't important, his name wouldn't be on the product. It's kind of the circular reasoning there. That's why you see it so often with certain movies. They'll just throw a name on there because the movie's bad or Mm -hmm. good, usually bad. Right. If Wild Bill can't be the brand of these new kinds of games that Sid Meier's making because Wild Bill doesn't make sense as a brand for pirates or railroad tycoon or civilization. Just think of it. Sid Meier's pirate. Wild Bill's pirates. (laughs) One rolls off the tongue, the other one not so much. (laughs) So uh, then we'll put Sid's name on the box. And he likes to say, and who knows whether he really did this or not, Wild Bill's a storyteller, but it's a good story and, and, and may well be true. I'm not saying Wild Bill's a liar. I'm just saying Wild Bill likes to tell a story. 
Wild Bill likes to give us an example of this, a time that they went out to a, a fine restaurant in, I think it might have been in California. I don't think it was in Baltimore. I think it was when they were at a trade show someplace as opposed to when they were in Baltimore. But they went out to a, a nicer restaurant as a way of kind of convincing Sid, who's going to be reluctant to like publicize himself, as a way of kind of convincing Sid that it's a good idea to put his name on the box of the products. He runs a little experiment. He goes up to the, the maitre d' or whatever of this restaurant and says, I'm here with the, the famous author. He's an author of computer games, so. <laughs> there you go. But, you know, a, a maitre d' is not going to connect with the idea of a, a computer game programmer being famous. So he says, I'm, I'm here with the very famous author, Mr. Sid Meier. Mr. Meyer does not want to be disturbed while he's eating. He doesn't want to be disturbed at his meal. So, of course, word starts getting around that the author, Mr. Sid Meier, is in attendance. Nobody knows who Sid Meier is, but the big author, Sid Meier, who does not want to be disturbed. That's a very important person. Thank you very much. And so suddenly people start coming up to him and asking for autographs and whatnot because, did you hear Sid Meier's here? Oh, my gosh, Sid Meier's here. <laughs> and so he uses— No one asked the all-important question of, who is Sid Meier? Well, he's a very important author that doesn't want to be disturbed. That's what I heard his person tell the Mater D. so— that's true. So I obviously need to go over there and disturb him and get his autograph. Exactly, because that's what people do. So it was a thought experiment in human nature, and it was a way to demonstrate, you know, we put your name on the box, or we put your name out there, we publicize you as a famous creator, and it's going to start getting us notice, even if right now you're not a famous creator, because it's not about whether you're actually famous or not, it's about if you sell that convincingly. And obviously now Sid Meier is, is famous. I mean, now because his name's been on the box, he is a very famous developer. That was kind of the logic for getting that ball rolling. So Sid Meier's Pirates, Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon, Sid Meier's Civilization. The main kind of thing that comes out of Pirates that kind of influences the future direction of Sid's work, you have all of these little mini-games, essentially. I talked about how you have all these different activities you can do. Wooing the Governor's Daughter, Ship, battles. Battle, ship battles, Sword Fights. Each one of these is kind of their own separate little interface within the larger game, partially put on by necessity, because how do you make a game that huge on a system of the day? Remember, this is a period of time your C64 is not going to have a hard disk in it, probably. You're loading off the floppy disk. You're only going to have so much memory on that computer. Uh, C64 has 64K of memory. That's why 64 is in the name. Some of that memory is reserved for the computer. Not all 64K of that is going to be used by your game. You have somewhere, somewhat less than 64K of memory to load chunks of the game into on the computer, and you don't have a hard drive to store the rest of it. So you have to do a lot of compression, and then you have to do a lot of swapping out. So part of the reason why you have different interfaces and different mini games is that when you're having the sword fight, you load in this part of the game into RAM. And then when that's order over, you swap that out back with your overworld again, which you load into that limited amount of RAM. And then you have a ship battle, so then you load in this part of the game, this chunk. And you're compressing them on the disk, and you're uncompressing them in the RAM. But if you were to just load the entire game all at once off of the disk, there wouldn't be enough RAM for that, and there's not enough capacity on the disk if you have to have everything uncompressed all at the same time. That's kind of why you kind of get this idea of all of these different subsystems creating a bigger whole. And anyone that's played Civilization has hopefully already recognized what I'm talking about here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because 
you have your overworld map, and then you have your city. Then you click on your city, and it actually takes that overworld map out of memory and loads in the city screen. And you have all of these sub-interfaces as part of this greater whole. And that really starts with Pirates for him. After Pirates, he takes over this game that's kind of been in development hell called Covert Action. It's a spy game. It's kind of a similar idea to Pirates in the sense that you have many different sub-games creating a whole. It kind of procedurally generates these different spy scenarios, and you basically have to undertake several different activities like eavesdropping, safe cracking, hailing people, all of this. These individual little mini-games to get little pieces of the puzzle so that you can unwind the caper and end up foiling the plot of the, of the enemy spies or the enemy terrorists or the enemy whoever. You know, you're getting all these different pieces through these different mini-games. Covert action never works as well as pirates, and in Sid's view, it's because the mini-games overwhelm the overall game. These mini-games could take as much as half an hour to complete. Pirates, it's like short five, ten-minute sequences, and then you're back to your strategic picture. Covert action, you do a 30-minute mini-game, then you're put back to the big picture, and after you've been spending 30 minutes on this very specific activity, then you're suddenly disoriented. It's like, why did I need that again? What am I doing next? What the big picture? Right. And so he felt it didn't come together very well as a result of that. And certainly some of the mini-games were funner or more useful than others, so there was kind of a mismatch there. So Covert Action is a game that never came together well. It didn't sell well. It's not the best example. Development went on for a long time, and development was very frustrating. During the very long development period, long for the time, not talking 10 years like a Final Fantasy 15, but just talking a couple of years, it's a long period of time to be working on a game for, you know, two or three years back in those days in the late 80s. He keeps fiddling around with other things. He keeps finding other little ideas that interest him more and getting sidetracked onto those when he should be working on covert action. The first one of those is he builds this little model railroad simulator. Just kind of, you know, you lay down track and you lay down switches and the little trains go everywhere. There's not much of a game there, but it's kind of an interesting kind of system. You know, here's Sid Meier again. He likes systems. You know, he likes experimenting with these little things. So he's kind of got that. And at this time, he's also gotten himself a new muse. I mean, Wild Bill has helped and continues to help on the military games a little bit, but not so much on pirates, on your covert action, on this kind of game. So he kind of, at this point, game development's getting a little bigger. Sid still mostly does everything himself, but the idea of teams are starting to permeate in the industry. The idea of producers are starting to permeate in the industry. And so he decides that he needs an assistant. Someone that can act as his producer, someone that can help fill in some of the design details around the systems he makes, someone whom he can bounce ideas off of. So he taps a producer at the company named Bruce Shelley for that role. Bruce Shelley had come up in games through the tabletop world. He had become a producer at Avalon Hill and had produced a couple of Avalon Hill's board games. He was very into strategy games and board games and whatnot. He was an enthusiast as well as someone who helped uh, produce them. He was not a star designer, and he was a producer, not a designer, but he was not a star designer at Avalon Hill. He was a pretty minor figure at Avalon Hill. But he decided, you know, this new computer game thing seemed pretty interesting, and Avalon Hill's in Baltimore, Microprose is in Baltimore, 
So he ends up going to Microprose. He's not the only guy from the board game world that Microprose ends up recruiting. We won't talk about the others because this isn't a Microprose episode. This is a Sid Meier episode. Bruce Shelley basically comes in because of that connect with the wargame production community around Avalon Hill that's also in the Baltimore area. Bruce Shelley produces a couple of ports of games, and Sid Meier decides that this seems like a cool guy, interesting guy, and so kind of makes him his assistant and his producer and his muse. So he's got this train thing, and Bruce Shelley loves railroads. He had worked on a railroad game in Avalon Hill. He had a model railroad merit badge from when he was a Boy Scout. I mean, he loved model railroads. Bruce Shelley kind of took this system and was the one that ran with it and said, we've got to have this kind of simulation on top of it. We've got to have the game here. We've got to have this game of building out a railroad in the mid-19th century when all the different railroad barons are competing with each other to connect cities and build lines and be the, the company that ferries people and cargo between the cities. So they created a game largely at Bruce's urging. They created this game that became a a simulation of running a railroad. There were kind of two games at war a little bit with each other here, because you had Sid Meier's kind of model railroad where you could lay the track and you could flip the switches and you could watch the trains go and whatnot. And then you had this economic simulation of the mid-19th century railroad construction kind of imposed on top of that. It wasn't a perfect melding of systems. It was still a darn good game. So you play this railroad baron, and the computer uh, opponents play other railroad barons, and then you're competing to connect cities and be the primary. You know, you you could compare it to something like Ticket to Ride today, I suppose, but Ticket to Ride ain't got nothing on this. I mean, Ticket to Ride's a pretty simplistic game. This is a very complex simulation, but a complex simulation made simple through efficient interfaces, which is another hallmark of Sid Meier games, is that you take a lot of complexity, and you reduce it to simplicity through your interface and through the way you present data to the player so that you can have a lot of interesting things going on under the hood, but you don't lose the player in the complexity. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And all of his games have really been very simple and easy to understand. As a young kid, both of us were able to really easily understand and play Civilization. Absolutely. And it's really about the interface, about presenting complex information in a simple way and presenting it in little bite-sized chunks where you can easily understand, okay, the city's building this, that's good. The city's building that. Okay, I've got these units over here. Uh, I've got my tech tree. I can see what's coming up next on that. You know, it's, it's about making it simple through the interface while still allowing a lot of complexity under the hood. And uh, with Railroad Tycoon, again, they put Sid Meier's name on it. Exactly. Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon, because we're making this the brand, because Microprose's brand had been flight simulators. Now Microprose's brand with these other games is going to be Sid Meier. If Sid Meier is making a game, we're going to put Sid Meier's name on the box. So another influence somewhat on Railroad Tycoon was SimCity, because this is a period of time when SimCity's coming out. Railroad Tycoon comes out in 1990. SimCity came out in 89. Of course, in 89, they're, they're still in the process of creating Railroad Tycoon. Bruce Shelley is probably the one that introduced Sid Meier to SimCity. Sid Meier was quite enamored with the presentation of SimCity. He liked the clean interfaces. He liked that. He liked the way that you lay down zones, and then once you define the basic parameters for an area through zoning and through bringing infrastructure into those zones, then 
kind of the game takes over automatically in real time and develops those zones. So you create a group of residential zones, and then you bring power to it, you bring transportation to it, road or rail, and then the zone develops automatically based on how desirable that area is. So maybe based on the location and the transportation and the level of police protection or whatever, you only get very simple single-family, low-income housing, or maybe you get great big luxury apartment buildings, just depending on how you've set up that area. But you don't actually get to control whether that zone is low-income housing or a luxury apartment. It happens based on the parameters that you uh, establish there. SimCity is very much influenced by the game of life, which we've talked about before. It's like you create the conditions for life, and then life kind of happens on its own. You create the conditions for a residential neighborhood, and then the residential neighborhood develops on its own based on those rules. You create a condition for industrial zone next to the residential zone, and residential zone reacts accordingly. Exactly. Sid liked all of that stuff. He didn't like the fact that it was so open-ended. We talked before about how Sid really wants an objective. SimCity is very influential because SimCity is the game that showed us that you don't need to have an objective. You don't need to win. (laughs) You can have fun just playing and creating your own objectives. But Sid Meier really can't. Sid Meier wants a game. (laughs) He's thinking about how can I take some of these really cool systems, this real-time natural development of territory and these clean interfaces and all of that, how can I take that and make a game around it. Well, why don't I take those elements and then have it be on a bigger scale? Let's make it bigger. Instead of a city, let's develop a civilization. He knows, just like Danielle Bontenberry knew the Avalon Hill board game civilization, so too did, did Sid Meier know that. And it's like, well, why don't we do something like that? You'll found a city, and then you'll zone this part of the map for agriculture. And your little people will go over and start doing agricultural and develop this part of the map for agriculture. And you'll zone this part of the map for mining. And then your little people will go over and start constructing mines over there. And and this is all taking place in real time. You're developing a whole civilization, not just a city. And so he starts implementing this. He finds it's just not working. It's too slow. There's not enough action. Once you send your little people off, There's really nothing left for you to do. You just kind of sit there and watch as the map very slowly changes in real time. It's just, it's not exciting. And you may do little tweaks or whatever every now and then, or once it gets to a certain point, I go, okay, I need more zone. So I did another zone. Time to go watch another television program. Yeah, well, I mean, and and look at, I mean, it's, it wasn't a civilization-based game, so it's not a direct analogy, but look at, Look at what happened when Will Wright basically tried to do the same thing with Sim Earth, where you're developing an entire planet and the way its geology and morphology and ecosystems and whatnot are. That is, I mean, there are people that like Sim Earth. Every game has its fans, but that that is a very slow-moving game where it doesn't feel like it feels like you click a couple of sliders and then you're sitting there waiting for something to happen. I mean, it is just not as exciting a concept as watching a city come to life because it's too abstract. It's too long a period of time. You don't get instant gratification in terms of your changes creating an instant change on the map. <laughs> it doesn't grab you and give you excitement. It doesn't start off going, pow, you have a civilization. It's you. You're over there. Where are you going to make a plate to live? If you don't make a plate to live, you're going to die in like uh, three turns. So right. <laughs> move, move, move. 
Command and Conquer and Warcraft, this is not. I mean, it's a real-time game, but, I mean, it's not even Europa Universalis or a Paradox game level of, of real-time. This is land slowly changing over time, and it's it can end up being more like watching paint dry. <laughs> so he goes back to the drawing board on this one. He takes a different track. Another game that he really likes, that he's very interested in, is a game called Empire. Now, there have been several games in the early history of computer gaming called Empire. The Empire that we're talking about this time is specifically a game that was created by a guy named Walter Bright in 1977-1978 when he was in college on mainframe computers at the time. Empire was inspired by Risk. It's the idea of starting from a small number of places on the map and expanding out from those places to conquer the entire world. It's not a hugely complex game, as Risk is not a complex game. It's very fun, and it's a very interesting, because basically you start with a city, and this city is able to create military units. And the entire rest of the world is unexplored, except for the area right around your city. Starting to sound a little familiar here? A wee bit. You can manufacture units. It takes a certain number of turns to manufacture units, and you can send out these units to uncover the map, explore the map. And as you explore the map, you'll discover other cities that are owned by other players, which are computer-controlled players. Uh, We're not talking about a massive multiplayer game. This is not that empire. That's a different empire. (laughs) There were lots of empires. And when you come across these other cities, then you can use your military units to conquer them. The more cities you have, the more units you can build, and eventually the more advanced units you can build. We're talking similar units in technology. When I say build more advanced units, I just mean go from infantry to tanks to battleships or whatever. I mean, it's, it's not spearmen to musketeers to riflemen, you know. It's all the same technology level, but you can build bigger, more complex units, more powerful units, and you can build more of them, and you slowly expand across the entire map, conquering everything that you can. It's a war game. It's a risk-like war game. It's not a grand strategy, a 4X strategy game in the vein of civilization, but it's got that element of you're uncovering the map and you're building units and you're sending out those units to conquer other opponents. So he decides that that's a better model to base civilization on. So he goes back to that. So you've got the SimCity influence just in the idea of building something over time that becomes more complex over time. You have the Empire idea of uncovering the map and conquering the map with units that you build in your cities. You've got the Railroad Tycoon idea of having a simple economy. That's something that it really pulls, you know, what if we took the kind of the economic system of Railroad Tycoon, not that it's a direct port, but take the economic system and put that into a different kind of game. And then you've got the Avalon Hill board game civilization in a way tying it all together. Again, his civilization is not a port of the Avalon Hill board game. Uh, He was aware of that board game, and he may have taken some inspiration on doing a civilization development thing from that board game. Avalon Hill and Microprose had a few disagreements over both Railroad Tycoon and Civilization because of how closely they resembled Avalon Hill board games, but... They sort of worked out their differences amicably, (laughs) essentially with civilization, while Bill went and said, why don't we just, I I guess I'll digress into this. We like digression. That's the entire point of this. So Railroad Tycoon was very similar to this Railroad's 1830 game that Avalon Hill did. So Eric Dott, the head of 
Avalon Hill calls up Wild Bill. They're both Baltimore-based companies. They know each other. And it's like, you've copied my game. And Wild Bill was basically like, we did? <laughs> it's like, oh, shoot. Well, I'm so sorry. We will not do this again. And Eric Dot was just like, okay. These are reasonable people. Then Sid's very next game is Civilization, which kind of copies Avalon Hill's Civilization. Not in mechanics, but in general idea. Mm-hmm. So then Eric Dot's like, you said you wouldn't do this again. And Wild Bill's like, oh, shoot. It's like, okay, here's what we'll do. Why don't we cross-promote our game? We will advertise Avalon Hill's Civilization in every copy of Sid Meier's Civilization we sell uh, with a little flyer or coupon or something. And you will do the same in Avalon Hill Civilization games for Sid Meier's Civilization. We'll help each other out here. Eric Dot was like, okay. So <laughs> they didn't go to court over it. They probably could have, but they settled it like gentlemen. <laughs> Civilization is drawing from all of these elements, but then it's pulling them together with this great Sid Meier idea of let's have a bunch of different subsystems and integrate them through different interfaces, but then make the whole thing relatively easy to follow. So you're only paying attention to one or two things at a time. You're not overwhelmed, but you've always got all of these different things going on. And then, of course, this creates that one more turn feel that is so important to the success of civilization, because even though each individual element is simple, since there's multiple things going on, there's always something coming due. So it's like, well, if I play just one more turn, my final battleship will be ready and I can start my invasion. And then a turn after that, I'm finally getting this technology that lets me build that. And two turns after that, this wonder of the world that I've been building for 40 turns is finally coming. So you play the one more turn for the battleship. And then you're like, well, I'll play the two more turns for the technology. And then I'll play the two more turns for the wonder. And pretty soon one more turn turns into 50. Because there's always something happening that is just a turn or two away that compels you to play just a little longer. And 50, of course, turns into 4 a.m. and you go, I have to get up at 5 in order to go to work. Well, <laughs> if I have to get up at 5 anyway, if I fall asleep, I'm not going to really <laughs> be able to wake up well anyway. Let's go get some caffeine, hit the bathroom, and we'll, well, that's an hour, so another hour of turns. Exactly. And so that's, that's kind of how it creates this compelling thing. Again, it's very much iteration. It's Sid creating a little prototype of something, then sharing it primarily with just Bruce Shelley in the beginning, later in the project, maybe a couple other people, but largely Bruce Shelley. Sharing things with Bruce Shelley, Bruce comes back with suggestions to him about what's working and what's not, then going back and iterating again, sharing, iterating, sharing, iterating, slowly refining the fun, changing or taking out things that don't work, enhancing things that do work until you have a game. And that's very much the Sid Meier model of game design, particularly in these early days when two or three people could still design a game all by themselves. And again, this is largely taking place during covert action. They set covert action aside entirely to do Railroad Tycoon. Then after Railroad Tycoon, they went back to covert action, but they started doing civilization on the side. And they kind of had to finish covert action at this point because it had been development for so long. But they've got civilization germinating at the same time they're doing covert action. So they finally turn covert action in and then get, you know, to serious work on civilization. This creates some friction, some tension. Uh, it's kind of hard for some people in the company to wrap their heads around some of the stuff that Sid's doing that's so different from what kind of microprose's core brands are. But at the end of the day, Wild Bill trusts his partner to do the right thing and come up with a good game. So ultimately, Wild Bill is happy to let this stuff continue. But it's there's always a little bit of, you know, should we be working on this? Should we be working on that? A little Nervous bit of this, tension. A little bit of this 
kind of clandestine feel to putting these games together, at least in their early stages. And that covert action game kind of blew up and right, right. do very well. Yeah, so there, there's all that going on, you know. Uh, and I should mention at this point, this is something not a lot of people are aware of. At this point, Sid Meier is actually an independent contractor. Somewhere around 88 or 89, he was never really involved in the business decisions. He decides he doesn't really want the pressure of even having a stake in the company. What he really wants to do is just build games. In 1989, I think it's 89, it might have been 88, but it was right in there, Sid Meier actually sells his stake in Microprose. He becomes an independent contractor, an exclusive independent contractor to Microprose. So every game that he creates is going to be for Microprose. Microprose is still the company he helped found. Microprose is still the company where his heart is. But he no longer has a financial stake, an ownership stake. He no longer has any kind of business stake in the company because that's really not what he wants to be a part of. Most of the time you hear Sid Meier left Microprose in 1996. That's when he founded Firaxis, his next company. And it's like, well, that's when he stopped making games for Microprose. But he actually left Microprose in about 1989 and just became an exclusive independent contractor. Still working, I think, out of the Microprose office. I mean, most people probably didn't even realize that he had changed his role in the company at all because the way he functioned at the company didn't change at all. It's just that he no longer had any financial stake or ownership stake in the company. So he's working as an independent contractor in all these games. Civilization slowly comes together kind of over 1990, 1991. Again, when it comes time to bring all of these elements together and create a path through civilization, they keep it at a grade school level of history. They don't want it to be too complex. And so he gets most of his history from these kind of timeline of history books, these kind of big books that have timelines of events and give just brief descriptions of events, because those really just highlight the big things and they keep it very simple because on a timeline you can't put too much information. And it's something that pretty much anyone can relate to from an adult all the way down to a small child. Exactly. He doesn't know exactly when the aha moment came for a tech tree as a way of marking progress. He doesn't remember that, unfortunately. One of the most important developments from a game design perspective in the history of everything, the tech tree. (laughs) He doesn't remember the exact aha moment, but he figures that he came to that because he needed to figure out a way to progress progress civilization. Because uh, when they were doing their early prototypes, they just mocked up the ancient era while they were figuring out how the systems worked. He needed to figure out a way to get it out of the ancient era into the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, modern period. And he's looking at all these timeline books for his idea of how history progressed. And so this, that, that kind of just merged together. It's like he's looking at timelines, linear progressions of events, linear progressions of technology. It kind of it fits. You can kind of see how that would morph into the idea of the tech tree. But he doesn't know exactly how that happened. He doesn't remember the aha moment where he's like, we'll organize our technologies into branching trees. Because, I mean, that's, that's everything now. I mean, it's not just strategy games. The skill trees in MMOs and MOBAs and RPGs and all of this, I mean, you can trace those back the way they function today to the tech tree concept, too. I mean, this is one of the biggest and most influential concepts in modern video game history, and he really is the inventor of it. That isn't to say that nobody ever had a progression system before where you have to learn this before that or this before that. But he's the first one to really come up with that complete idea 
of you have these things, this thing branches off to these two things, this thing branches off to these two things, and then those branch, and then these two branches come back together to create this thing. And then if you have all of these technologies from various branches, that then allows you to transition from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age, or from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, so on and so forth, until you're to the postmodern, I'm sending a spaceship in order to play the next game. Mm-hmm. So that invention is fundamentally Sid Meier's. I won't say conclusively that there was never somebody that came up with a concept similar to the tech tree before him, but his was the tech tree that influenced everybody. When the Westwood people were looking to do technology in their real-time strategy games and implemented tech trees in their real-time strategy games like Command and Conquer, they said they were influenced by the civilization tech tree. So, I mean, it goes back to Sid Meier, even if in computer game history you can almost always point to one obscure thing that got there first. But for all intents, and that may be true here too, but for all intents and purposes, Sid Meier gave us the tech tree, and it was because he needed this way to demonstrate the advance of civilization in an easy-to-follow manner. At the very least, we can say that Sid Meier is the one who popularized it. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And was the one that developed it in the form we think of it today. I mean... He wasn't influenced by anyone previous to him. He developed it all by himself. It's just you might be able to say that Programmer A did something similar five years ago. So sorry, Programmer A, but (laughs) you're just going to be a footnote. Right. You know, Sid Meier created it as we know it. Not just popularized, but created as we know it. So the final kind of thing that came about. So he finishes the game. Wild Bill's a little leery about how it's going to be received. Uh, They put it out, and it turns out that some players are a little overwhelmed by it. When they put the first copies out and they're starting to get feedback, fan mail, registration cards, whatever, from people, they do notice that players are getting a little lost. Even though Sid Meier does a good job of creating an interface that's fairly easy to follow, this is still a game packed full of so much more than most games have and so many possibilities that it can still be kind of easy to get overwhelmed by it. And so Wild Bill's one important contribution to the game is, as he puts it, we have to put Sid in the box. And so that's how the concept of advisors got in, your military advisor, your science advisor, and all of that. Because there needed to be some kind of guiding hand when you're getting used to the game and you have all of these choices that can say, okay, this is the improvement you should build now. This is the military unit that's probably going to help you best now. This is the technology that's going to get us this, and I think we should really have this. This stat means this, and so if you focus on that, it will guarantee you this. When you're trying to develop things for your city, you're looking for this. So at the very beginning, an advisor might go, all right, oh, great Lord, you can go wherever you want, but You know, being near water for, like, drinking, that's awesome, man. You (laughs) really need to go get some water. And it's it's not so much tutorial things like that, but, like, your military advisor will advise at a given moment that you should be building chariots. Yes, we have the wheel now. So you need to go get some chariots, maybe some stone from over there to make those wheels for the chariots, but definitely some chariots. And really, if you're playing Civilization One. And it's the early stages of the game. Build chariots. Build nothing but chariots. Pretty much (laughs) build all the chariots you can because really, they are glorious. That's right. They go fast. They attack well. They're 
gold yeah. on wheels. They don't defend as well, but they don't have to because you're going to conquer the world using chariots. Not everything was perfectly balanced in the first game, but that's okay. So, yeah. so they put the advisor system in as a way to ground people, and that was kind of Wild Bill's big kind of contribution. And then after that, Civilization, of course, I mean, became a big hit. Very big hit. And that's, I mean, that's the last kind of, Sid Meier still makes games today, but that's, that's the last, like, really important game. I mean, the games that he made that really defined gaming were F-15's Strike Eagle, which was an important early flight simulator, and then the trifecta of Pirates, Railroad Tycoon, and Civilization that led the way to open-ended 4X gameplay where you have lots of complex systems rendered into simplified form via interface so that you never feel overwhelmed by a lot of choices. That's the mark that Sid Meier left. I mean, he's never done anything quite as big again. So even though he's, he's had an interesting later career, I mean, there, there's not much for the purposes of this podcast to, to go into after that. Microprose got the license to do Magic the Gathering uh, as a game. He did the Magic the Gathering game for Microprose. He never played Magic. <laughs> he was never a Magic player. He just used a big book that had all the cards in it uh, and, and the rules and whatnot to understand how it worked. He wanted to do that game to personally take charge of it, because at first he wasn't in charge of it. It was just someone else at the company. He wanted to take charge of it because he was interested in the systems, because he is a system guy, and he thought it was very interesting how you have these basic rules, and then this card modifies this, this card modifies this, this card plays on that card to modify it even more. He liked the way that you had all of these kind of basic systems that were modified so intricately by individual cards, which is why he wanted to play a role in it. But that's that's not really a game that ever came together very well. No fault of his. It was just a hard translation. Uh, Civilization Two was not him. Uh, fellow designer Brian Reynolds that had joined the company had some ideas on how to expand the basic Civilization game, and so he basically said, well, you know, go on and do that then. That'll be fun. So <laughs> Civilization Two is more Brian Reynolds' game. At that point, after Civilization II came out and after Magic the Gathering came out, is when he decided to leave Microprose for good. Basically, by this time, Microprose had hit some financial difficulty after going public and had been sold to Spectrum Holobyte. They never integrated well, and I've, I've talked to people on the Spectrum end as well. Microprose and Spectrum Holobyte were never really integrated very well. They were two different companies with two different cultures on literally two different sides of the country. Spectrum Holobyte's in Alameda by the nuclear vessels, and Microprose is over here in Maryland with also, a, at this point, a satellite office in Texas as well, where Master of Orion was made. They never really integrated their product development teams. They never really integrated their management very well. And since Spectrum was the company in charge, kind of Spectrum, it felt like from the perspective of the Microprose people, the Spectrum side of the company took priority over the Microprose side. I mean, Civilization had been a big hit. They're working on Civilization 2. Brian Reynolds is taking the lead on that. The Spectrum side is working on a Top Gun game. And from Sid Meier's perspective, and the Spectrum people may feel differently, but from Sid Meier's perspective, it felt like all the company focus was on Top Gun, and there was very little company focus on Civilization II, never mind that it was the sequel to a game that had been a major hit. And so he, at that point, felt it was time to cut ties entirely. He didn't feel like he and his people were being valued 
by the new management at Spectrum Holobyte in the way they should have been. Whether they were valued or not, I will say that, like I said, I've talked to several Spectrum Holobyte people, and, and they definitely all agreed that the companies were not well integrated in the first couple of years after the purchase. They may not have meant to treat the Microprose people as second-class citizens, but there was definitely a problem. So Sid Meier, Brian Reynolds, who I just talked about, the uh, lead developer on Civilization II, as well as on the game Colonization, which was kind of a spinoff of the Civilization concept, and Jeff Briggs, who had been brought in as a producer and then it turned out also had some music talent, so was also the composer on a lot of Microprose games. These three key creative people at Microprose, though of course Sid Meier was technically an independent contractor already at this point, decide to leave the company in 1996, and they found this company called Firaxis, again in the Baltimore area, because that's where they are. And that's where Sid Meier remains to this day. He still gets involved in game development from time to time. I mean, he was very involved in the early days, uh, created the war game Sid Meier's Gettysburg, they put his name on that, which went for kind of the depth, because it, it only simulated that one battle, but then it simulated it in a really kind of high level of detail that allowed it to play out in a lot of interesting ways. So that was kind of their kind of their stick there, take one battle, but do that one battle really, really well. And he's been involved in design of, of other games. Obviously, he's also kind of in a larger sense in charge of product development and serves as a mentor to other people in the company. I do think he contributed some to Civilization Three, though I don't think he was the lead on it. Uh, Alpha Centauri as well. I mean, they've done more of these kind of 4X strategy games. And he's still fascinated by games. He still is looking for those neat mechanics or those neat ideas that they can iterate and turn into something fun. He hasn't lost that. He's still someone very well-known and well-respected in the industry. It's, it's remarkable that he's still in the industry as a developer. So many of the developers that were around when he started are no longer there, but he's one of these guys that just uh, keeps on going. So even though he hasn't done anything as big as Civilization ever again in terms of having a seismic change within the industry. He's still out there and he's still helping make games and he he still loves what he does and and we still feel his influence today on anything that has complex strategy mechanics on anything that has tech trees. Uh you know, his fingerprints are just all over the video game industry as we know it even now. Well, thank you Sid for wasting many many of my childhood hours and a few of my adult ones. <laughs> I guess, as always, where do we delve into next episode? Well, I think let's stay away from companies at least one more time. Don't want to get pigeonholed as the as the company podcast, <laughs> which we may have been in danger of doing for a little bit there. Maybe. So let's, uh, let's switch gears again, and let's go back to the very beginning. Not the very, very beginning. We've kind of already done that. But the beginning of the commercial industry. The Pong clones... And the very first video game market, which was this Pong market, we've talked about it very briefly when talking about even larger periods of time, how there was Pong, and then there were clones of Pong, and then Pong got big, and lots of games were sold, and then there was a crash of the Pong market. Pong on a chip. And right, and that went away. But we haven't actually focused in on kind of how that Pong market developed. And I'm talking about the arcade here. We're not going to talk about Pong on a chip in the home just take a moment to talk about the way the video game arcade industry developed kind of in 72, 73, 74 with the rise and fall of this Pong business. 
So the arcade and the rise and fall of not Atari's Pong. Right, but just ball and paddle games in general. Ball and paddle games and all the variations thereof. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCWpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.